Morning, everyone. Glad you're with us. I'm Poppy Harlow with Phil Mattingly in New York. And new this morning, the number of hostages believed to be held in Gaza has risen. It is now 240. That is according to the Israeli military. And this comes as Israeli soldiers and tanks push deeper into the Gaza Strip with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu rejecting calls for a ceasefire and refusing to halt the ground and air assault on Hamas. Just as the United States would not agree to a ceasefire, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, or after the terrorist attack of 9-11, Israel will not agree to a cessation of hostilities with Hamas after the horrific attacks of October 7th. Calls for a ceasefire are calls for Israel to surrender to Hamas. Hamas has released a hostage video of these three Israeli women who are being held captive, Danielle Aloni, Ramon Kirsch, and Yelena Trupanov. One of them begs Netanyahu to secure their release. Netanyahu has called the video cruel propaganda. Meanwhile, on the ground in Gaza, the IDF says troops have been battling terrorist cells arms, armed with machine guns and anti-tank missiles. This morning, we've seen Israeli tanks and bulldozers on the move and even more airstrikes pounding Gaza. The IDF says combat forces have struck around 300 targets over the last day, including Hamas's underground compounds and tunnels beneath Gaza. So as you can see, there have been a lot of developments overnight. Let's go to Rafael Roma. He joins us live in Tel Aviv. I mean, very uh, strong message there from Netanyahu about absolutely no ceasefire. This is the international community, including the United States, are talking a lot about humanitarian pauses. What can you tell us this morning? Yes, Papi Phil, good morning to you. If there were any doubts about what Israel's position is regarding the growing pressure from the international community pushing for a ceasefire, these doubts were put to rest last night by Benjamin Netanyahu. In a televised address, the Israeli prime minister said that calls for a ceasefire or calls for Israel to surrender to Hamas, to surrender to terrorists, he said, surrender to barbarism. That will not happen. Netanyahu also drew parallels, as we just heard before, not in Hebrew, but in English, parallels to the United States position after Pearl Harbor in 1941 and the September 11th attacks in 2001, implying that just as the U.S. went after its attackers, Israel also has the right to go after the terrorists who attacked his country on October 7th. This is a time for war, he said. And Netanyahu also addressed the criticism that Israel is inflicting punishment on the Palestinian people by pursuing Hamas, saying the militant Islamic organization, the one preventing civilians from moving to a safe zone, he said. Poppy, Phil. Rafael, uh, CNN is choosing not to air the hostage video released by Hamas, what Prime Minister Netanyahu called propaganda. But Danielle Aloni, Ramon Kirsch and Yelena Trupanov, what do we know about these three women? Yeah, so what we know is that Hamas has released a, a video uh, of the, the, the three women. It's, it's a short video showing uh, the, the women who are believed to be hostages. In the video, one of the three women addresses Prime Minister Netanyahu directly saying, you promised to release us all, which would imply that she's aware of ongoing hostage nego negotiations. But because the women are in captivity, they could have been forced to appear in the video. And, and by releasing this video, Hamas is probably trying to put Netanyahu in an even tighter spot because he already faces pressure from the families of the hostages to stop the war and focus 
on their release. So we have to uh, take a look at everything, the way it happened. And, and, and by the way, the family is also saying that they, they do not believe Hamas. In an interview with our very own Jake Tapper, uh, uh, somebody speaking for the family said that they, they have no message for Hamas, absolutely, but they want to tell the hostages to stay strong because the families are doing everything they, ha they can to bring them home safely. Poppy, Phil. All right, Rafael Romo, live for us on the ground in Tel Aviv. Thank you. The IDF says it is, quote, actively it has actively rescued an Israeli soldier in a special operation. This is a big deal because this is the first time that a hostage has been successfully extricated so far and not released as part of a negotiation. Here you see Private Ori Megadish. She's in the middle there with her family. She's wearing that Marvel T-shirt. Watch the moment, though, when she was reunited with her family. The IDF says Private Megadish is well mentally and physically after the reunion. With us now is CNN military analyst and retired Air Force Colonel Cedric Layton. Uh, it's an extraordinary story. I mean, she was one of the people guarding um, on the lookout, watching videos, et cetera, right there on the border between Israel and Gaza when, when she was taken. The fact that we know that Israel used special forces on the ground, that they had this intelligence to get her out, does that mean she's the first of what maybe many more rescued this way? Well, one can certainly hope, Poppy, and good morning to you. But yes, when it comes to Private Ori Megadish, uh, she was, as you said, actively rescued in a special operation. And what that means is the Israelis went in deliberately looking for her. They had the intelligence that they needed in order to prosecute this target, as, as we would say in the military. Uh, they went into northern Gaza. Apparently, she was there, based on what we know. Uh, the other thing that's interesting about this, Poppy, is this was a joint operation between the Israeli Defense Forces and ISA, or Israeli Security Agency otherwise known as Shin Bet, which is the domestic intelligence agency for Israel. Colonel Layton, this obviously happens as the ground incursion has begun. U.S. special operators have been in country working with them in an advisory capacity over the course of the last several weeks. Are you surprised it took this long for the first successful special operations uh, effort, or do you believe the ground incursion was critical to that? Well, I, I'm not surprised that it took that long, Phil. I think that the the key thing to realize here with, with this is that uh, it takes a long time to get the intel right. So they needed to know where she was. She may have been moved between uh, the 7th of October when the Hamas attacks occurred and she was captured uh, to the time that she was uh, reunited with her family and, and uh, taken, of course, by the IDF and the ISA. Uh, so this is one of those areas where it uh, becomes really critical to prepare that battle space and go in and actually find these people exactly where they are at that moment in time. And that's one of the most difficult tactical intelligence uh, tasks that uh, the Israeli forces have to have at this point. But it could mean that they can do this again. But now that uh, this has happened, uh, they also have to realize that Hamas may do other things uh, to keep the hostages away from the IDF or uh, the Israeli security agency. But on the other side of that, they're also going to have a lot more information from her about what it was like, how she was held, what can help them get more of the hostages out. What about the ground uh, incursion? Because now we've seen it for several days uh, the idea of going in, then coming out. There's also major questions about um, an Israeli tank shooting on what looks like a passenger vehicle there in Gaza. The Israeli forces are saying, look, Hamas uses these passenger vehicles, et cetera. 
Right. So, uh, Poppy, one of the key things here, let's go to the tank shooting uh, incident. So this occurred right here at this Netzarim Junction, which is on the road between northern Gaza and southern Gaza, which is, of course, the evacuation route. So uh, here's the video. Uh, you see the car making a turn, and then all of a sudden uh, there's a blast uh, from the tank that is actually uh, fired at, uh, at, at the vehicle. Uh, one of the key problems that soldiers have in a situation like this is they don't know who is in that car. And when you see this kind of a situation, a soldier has about a second or less to make a decision as to whether or not they're going to shoot uh, at a vehicle that is perhaps not following orders or they just don't know what it's doing. If the vehicle were approaching at a high rate of speed, it would make it less questionable. In this case, the car is going moving very slowly. Uh, so there are a lot of questions as to whether or not it posed a threat to the soldiers uh, that, were, that were dealing with this at that moment in time at that junction. All right, Colonel Cedric Layton, thank you, as always. You bet. Well, House Republicans' plan for aid to Israel is facing sharp pushback from Democrats and even some Republicans. The details of the new $14.3 billion proposal ahead. Also, we have an update for you on our CNN colleague who fled at northern Gaza with his family. He says he is teaching his children how to survive in case he and his wife die. More on their dire situation in Gaza is next. Gaza is now hell on earth. Saving humanity from hell today means for the United Nations to save Palestinians in Gaza. 2.3 million Palestinians in Gaza face death every day and every night. Save them. Save them. Look at them as human beings. You cannot look only at one side and ignore this tragic humanity completely. You were just listening to the Palestinian Authority's foreign minister making a desperate plea at the United Nations Security Council, asking to establish a durable humanitarian truce. He insisted that the council must uphold its responsibilities to end the bloodshed. Israel, of course, is rejecting calls for a ceasefire as its troops and tanks advance deeper into Gaza. Israel keeps urging people living in northern Gaza to evacuate. Seems like things aren't much better in the south. Our CNN colleague Ibrahim Tahman is in southern Gaza with his family, where he's teaching his young children how to survive in case something happens to him and his wife. Nahlunot <laughs> 
وتعليم الأطفال أيضا ليتمكنوا من إطعام أنفسهم إذا قدرنا خزانات المياه مليئة بمياه غير صالحة للشرب لكننا نحاول الحفاظ على معنوية مرتفعة هناك شعور بالألفة وسط الفوضى أصبحت الانفجارات أعلى في نهاية هذا الأسبوع بينما قامت إسرائيل بتوسيع عمليتها البرية مما تركنا في حالة من انقطاع الطيار الكهربائي وكانت الهواتف الإسرائيلية هي الوحيدة التي تعمل يستخدم بعض الأطفال أجهزة محمولة للحفاظ على ما تبقى من حياة طبيعية لكن كل ما كنت أفكر فيه هو ما إذا كان والدي على قيد الحياة وأدعو الله أن تتمكن عائلتي من قضاء الليل حتى في منطقة الحرب هناك نور يضيء في الظلام زوجتي حامل في الشهر الثالث تماما مثل أبنائنا يتمتع هذا الطفل بالقدرة على تحويل خوفنا إلى فرح Our thanks to Ibrahim. He continues to basically have a real-time diary, uh, and the pieces are extraordinarily striking, extraordinarily important. And as a father, I can't fathom what and, they're going through. And that last line, where he tells us his wife is three months pregnant, saying, "This joy uh, brings some light into the darkness. It is their reality." We promise to keep you updated, day to day, on how Ibrahim and his family are. Just two days after expanding its strike against General Motors, it appears the United Auto Workers Union has come to a tentative deal with America's largest automaker. Hear what workers won at the bargaining table. And Israel issu issuing its highest travel alert for parts of Russia after an anti-Semitic mob stormed an airport. How the U.S. and Russia is responding. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. 
Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. So there's a deal. The six-week strike against the big three automakers looks like it is finally coming to an end. The United Auto Workers Union reaching a tentative deal with General Motors, giving workers their biggest pay raise in decades. It comes days after similar agreements with Ford and Stellantis. And now the deal must be approved and ratified by a majority of the union's members. That'll take a couple of days. Our Vanessa Yurkiewicz has been following it since the beginning and joins us now. Good morning. Morning. I know we don't have all the details, but generally, what did they get? Generally, General General Motors' tentative agreement mimics what we've seen with Ford and Stellantis. So these are the wages, some of the wages they've been looking for, 25% wage increase Mm -hmm. over four and a half years, a return to cost of living adjustments, which they gave up in 2009. That's now back in the deal. And you're also looking at an immediate raise of 11%. So when you put that all together, you're talking about 30% in wage increases over the life of this contract, you're also seeing some more contributions to 401ks. Mm-hmm. You're going to be seeing a signing bonus. In the General Motors deal in particular, they're adding two plants to that was this so agreement. interesting to me. Yeah, so these folks were not included in this original contract, but they're adding now, General Motors adding two additional plants mm. to this contract raising everyone's wages and also adding a bigger sort of robust set of members to this contract. These um, strikers for six weeks took big pay cuts. I mean, they got paid a bit out of the fund, but not full pay. When will they get back pay? And then the raises. Yeah. So once the contracts are ratified, of course, this is all up to the rank and file members that you see right there. They are the ones that have to vote. They'll get the back pay for this contract. However, in the meantime, they've been getting $500 a week in strike pay for a lot of those folks that hasn't really been enough. But we know that a lot of the workers at Ford and Stellantis are already back on the job. Mm -hmm. In a couple days, we'll see General Motors folks get back into the plant and get back to work. There are some things the union didn't get, right? They were uh, pushing for a four-day work week, 32-hour work week. They didn't get that, right? And they were asking for 40% pay raises across the board. They were asking for 40%. That was their top number. Obviously, this is a negotiation, so they came down to 30 if you account for everything. They also didn't get a return to traditional pensions. That is something that they wanted to see. Instead, retirees are getting additional pay increases, and then there's going to be additional contributions to 401ks. Mm -hmm. That's why you may have some of the senior employees a little bit upset that they still didn't get those pensions and some of the newer employees who maybe were looking for that, that's not in the deal. But the 401k contributions, according to the younger folks that I spoke to, are what a lot of us have. Sure. And they seem to be pretty happy. They got a that. little more time to earn on that 401k than yes, the other ones. Yes, yes. But this is um, a huge deal that they huge, came to. Historic, record-breaking, yeah. both the union and the automakers saying that. Thank so. you, Vanessa. Great reporting Thank throughout you. all of this. We appreciate it. Phil. Well, we here at CNN this morning would like to extend our warmest wishes to those who observed Monday's holiday. It's the sports equinox, obviously, is what I'm talking about. All five major American men's sports leagues, the NFL, NBA, NHL, MLS, and MLB, all playing on the same day. It is the greatest day, and yesterday was the only time this year that will happen. By far the biggest game of the day, Game 3 of the World Series between the Texas Rangers and Arizona Diamondbacks. The Fall Classic back in Phoenix for the first time since 2001. A very painful experience for Yankees fans. But it didn't go the way they hoped. Corey Seager on fire all postseason, delivering the biggest blow of the night. A two-run missile in the third inning. That's all Texas would need. Five pitchers combined for nine strikeouts while giving up just one run. 
The Rangers are a perfect 9-0 on the road this postseason, the first team in history with nine road playoff wins, and now take a 2-1 series lead heading into Game 4 tonight. I'm so glad you finally learned to celebrate the sports equinox. Finally. It's a tradition. I'm growing and learning. Our, in our household. Just, just like you guys. Yep. You're teaching. I'm learning. Mm-hmm. House Republicans revealing the details of its $14 billion aid package for Israel, why their plan faces an uphill battle in its own conference, let alone the Senate. So in his calls for more aid to Israel, President Biden has repeatedly urged Congress not to forget about America's commitments to Ukraine. We can't let petty, partisan, angry politics get in the way of our responsibilities as a great nation. We cannot and will not let terrorists like Hamas and tyrants like Putin win. I refuse to let that happen. In a rare case of unity in Washington, leadership in both parties in the Senate appear to be on the same page. This is a moment for swift and decisive action to prevent further loss of life and to impose real consequences on the tyrants who have terrorized the people of Ukraine and of Israel. And right now, the Senate has a chance to produce supplemental assistance that will help us do exactly that. We need to work with our colleagues in the House to ensure all forms, all these forms of aid make it to the president's desk. We must not succumb to the false allures of isolationism that the hard right now professes, because the only thing that will achieve is to make America less safe. Even the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, seems to be on board with funding for both Israel and Ukraine, although he does think they should be passed as separate bills. We can't allow Vladimir Putin to prevail in Ukraine because I don't believe it would stop there. And it would probably encourage and empower China to perhaps make a move on Taiwan. We have these concerns. Um, We're not going to abandon them. But here's where the reality sets in. Under the new speaker, Mike Johnson, the House has released its proposal for an Israel funding bill. Does not have Ukraine funding, no path or bill for Ukraine funding. That Israel funding bill already facing an uphill battle in the House. Some Republicans already opposed, Democrats as well. And it would absolutely be dead in the Democrat-led Senate. It includes $14 billion in aid to Israel, but it offsets that money by cutting the exact same amount from the IRS. No money, of course, is allocated for Ukraine. Now, despite Republican hand-wringing about ballooning deficits, the spending offset would actually add to the deficit to the tune of about $30 billion. That's according to the Nonpartisan Committee for Responsible Budget. The reason is, well, math. When you cut funding to the agency in charge of collecting revenue— you tend to bring in less revenue. Joining us now, Josh Barrow, writer of the Very Serious Newsletter, and Kayla Gardner, White House correspondent for Bloomberg News. Um, Kayla, very proud of myself for the math uh, that I was doing. But this is clearly a negotiating strategy by House Republicans, but I'm wondering what the end game here is at this Mm -hmm. point. I think for Johnson, he really knows that he has to please the most conservative members of his caucus if he wants to keep his position. We know this vote or the ability to vote a speaker out is still on the table for him. And so he wants to signal to them that he's prioritizing spending cuts, which has been a huge priority for the caucus after Democrats were in control of the House for those first two years. And so he's definitely wanting to deliver that. But as you mentioned, this bill is very unlikely to pass. As soon as it hits the Senate or if it even gets there, it's very unlikely to actually get over the finish line. That's a big deal. I mean, he has said Johnson, he wants to change the rules to make it harder to get removed, but he hasn't. So the rules are the rules, and he has to walk the same tightrope that McCarthy had to walk. So does this even pass the chamber? Uh, I, I assume Israel will pass at some 
Israel aid will pass at some point. It's not clear to me that this is going to pass the chamber. I mean, they're hoping that some number of Democrats are going to feel so strongly that they have to vote for whatever Israel aid package is put on the floor, that they will vote for this, even though it has this IRS cut, because they know that's not going to become law eventually anyway. Um, it's not clear to me whether that's true, how many, if any, Democrats are actually going to feel compelled in that way. And you have some Republicans on, on, on the right in the conference who are broadly opposed to foreign aid and don't even want to do a foreign aid package for Israel. So it's not clear that you have a majority to pass this in the House. But the th in terms of pleasing the hard right members of his caucus, I mean, the, this has been a pattern with Republican majorities in the House of Representatives for 10 years, where you have this kabuki, where you pass some conservative wish list bill, and that's supposed to be the moral victory for people on the right of the caucus. But sooner or later, you need to pass something that will pass the Senate and that can be signed by a Democratic president. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, that's going to be something that has people in, on the right fringe of the Republican House conference quite unhappy. And so if, you know, if Mike Johnson needs to deliver for those people, he's not going to be able to and pass an Israel aid package. I do think one has to pass eventually politically. And also, they have to reopen. They have to pass a bill to continue government spending. I was just going to say, this is his first test, but he has to keep the government open. Right. Yeah. And so you could end up rolling those things all together. It might be that there's one, one package that passes somewhere toward the end of November that includes funding to keep the government open and includes supplemental funding for Israel and Ukraine and maybe for other priorities. But at some point, Johnson is going to have to bring something to the floor that is going to upset people like Chip Roy on the right end of his caucus. And that's when we'll see whether he can retain the speakership in a way that McCarthy couldn't. But, Akela, to that point, this is the hurdle for this Republican conference. This was always Kevin McCarthy's biggest problem. He can do step one of the Kabuki theater that we all know very, very well. You know the process. What McCarthy could never get to was step two, three, and four, which actually reaches an outcome. Do you think mm -hmm. Johnson has the space to reach an outcome here? I think that's not what he's trying to achieve with this proposal. I think he's trying to signal boost the priorities of the conservative members of his caucus. And I think something that's frustrating for the White House is they felt that their supplemental funding request was really something that could pass. They included border security measures, funding to increase security at the border, and they felt that that was going to be able to get Republican support. And Indo-Pacific funding for Taiwan as well. Exactly. And that's also something that's very has wide bipartisan support. And so they felt like that was something that they could actually get over the finish line. But I think Johnson did not want to take that up immediately. He wanted to show that he's willing to hold a hard line and willing to go to bat with the White House. But what about combining? I'm glad you brought up border funding because the, the Biden's proposal for $100 billion was in Taiwan, Ukraine, Israel, border funding, humanitarian aid. Mm -hmm. What if there were coupling together of the border funding with this Israel package? Would that be more palatable to those on the far right? I think it would have to be more than just border funding. I mean, this is where the action is in the Senate, the division in the Republican Senate caucus right. is the question of should we do this broad aid package for these bipartisan priorities, or do we also need policy changes at the border? The view that a lot of conservative Republicans in the Senate have is that more money for border, for border spending without policy changes, just more money to implement the Biden policies on yeah. immigration that they don't like. That's something that Senator Lankford said this weekend. It was mm -hmm. an important distinction. Yes. And, and frankly, I think the Biden administration should want certain policy changes at the border because there are certain things that the administration is already trying to do that are continuity with Trump administration policy, trying to reduce the number of people entering the country illegally, coming to the, to the border and making asylum claims that are often ultimately going to be rejected, but after years of process. There are things they're doing that are legally dubious, that were also legally dubious that when Trump did them, that they could legalize if they were going to do some border policy changes. But the Biden administration doesn't really like to talk about what its border policy actually is. And they would be sort of admitting 
the extent to which that they have continuity or are trying to have continuity with Trump-era policies. So that feels like it, it should be an area of possible bipartisan agreement because it implicitly is. But the, the two sides in Congress clearly are not there at all on reaching that deal. And immigration policy is complicated. Trying to paper that within a matter of weeks when you need to do this supplemental would be challenging. So I don't think that's going to be in the final agreement, although it probably should be. Josh, thank you. Kayla, great to have you. Well, the trial seeking to disqualify Donald Trump from the 2024 ballot, it is now underway in Colorado. Takeaways from the opening arguments, that's ahead. And the mother of 23-year-old Shawnee Luke, whose remains were just found after she was kidnapped during Hamas's attack on that music festival in southern Israel, joins us. Stay with us. This morning, Israel confirming they have found the remains of 23-year-old Shawnee Luke. Shawnee was at the Nova Music Festival in southern Israel, where so many young people had gathered to celebrate music and peace when Hamas attacked. She was also one of the first victims that we saw. We've seen so many beautiful pictures of her. Her body was seen, though, in a Hamas propaganda video shortly after the attack. And we are going to show you that video because her mother wants the world to see how brutally Hamas treated her daughter. Before we play it, I want to warn you, it is graphic. So here you see Shani appearing to be unconscious in the back of a truck being driven into Gaza by Hamas militants. We are blurring the images of her body. Shani's mother, Ricarda Luke, is with us this morning. Ricarda, thank you very much for being here to share uh, a bit about your daughter uh, as we all remember her and honor her life. You, as every mother would, have been holding on to hope, any hope you had that, that she had survived. But you got the news that she did not. What do you want the world to know about her? Uh, we need just try to remember her as she was, as a beautiful, lively person. Um, she liked to travel and music and dancing, and she was traveling and had many friends all over the world. And she just enjoyed laughing and uh, experiencing life. And so it was just cut too short. You can see but, in uh, yeah. You can see in the pictures of her really how full of life she is. She loved music. I mean, the fact that was a festival also to celebrate peace, and look what happened is just striking. And and an artist as well. Is that right? Yeah, she's very artistic. She always painted. She designs clothes. She's a tattoo artist, doing tattoos for others. And yeah, it, it just. It came from a celebration to a nightmare. Yeah, it was uh, such a contrast. Such a contrast. Your, your husband um, said this to Israel's Channel 13 that I was so struck by when you guys got the news. He said, I'm, I'm happy because I know where she is. She isn't lying in some tunnel under Gaza. Every minute we are firing at them and all the earth is shaking and there is dust and it's impossible to breathe. Do you share yeah. some of that relief? I know it's it's a weird question to ask, right? You've lost your daughter, but at the same time, to have this clarity? Yeah, you know, after three weeks that you, you have no idea where your daughter is, what they're doing to her, what is happening, what is... You don't know if she's alive or not or injured, nothing. There's just like you're in a vacuum for three weeks, just hoping 
to get some signs or life sign. And then suddenly you get the worst news, but in, in one hand, it's really okay. Now it's final. Now we can stop looking for her, which is some finality to go on. On the other hand, we always had hopes. We were optimistic that she will come back. We would say, okay, maybe probably she's injured. Probably she experienced the worst nightmares there have been. She will have a trauma from the war zone she's been. And I mean, we were willing to take everything, just come back. But, uh, but at least we know what happened and she didn't suffer. And I, I think the worst outcome would have been that all the hostages would have been released and maybe she wouldn't be one of them. Mm. And then we would wonder all our life, where is she, what happened? And nobody maybe could give us an answer. I think that's the worst scenario that could happen. You are so. um, sit sitting Shiva now and um, sharing stories about her and your memories of her. Can you leave us with one of your favorite memories of your daughter? Um, she was very, also as a small kid, she was very stubborn. Like she knew everything, what she wants. She was very decisive and she, she was very funny and she was playing with her brothers and sisters and was making funny movies and editing and creating really funny movies, which we really love to see also when they grow up and she was very creative and very funny. So that's what we always remember about her. Clearly, she brought a lot of joy into this world, Ricarda. May her memory be a blessing. And thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Well, the war between Israel and Hamas creating tension on some college campuses around the country. And a man in Nevada was just charged with making anti-Semitic threats against Senator Jackie Rose Moore. Next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Well, just a few hours, a historic but long shot trial resumes in Colorado that could get former President Trump kicked off the ballot based on the 14th Amendment. Trump's lawyers clashing with the challengers yesterday, accusing them of trying to derail Trump's campaign and bashing their case as, quote, anti-democratic. The challengers argued this is a necessary step to ensure a, quote, fair 2024 election by keeping an ineligible candidate off the ballot. Trump incited a violent mob to attack our capital to stop the peaceful transfer of power under our Constitution. And we are here because Trump claims, after all that, he has the right to be president again. But our Constitution, our shared charter of our nation, says he cannot do so. Frankly, President Trump didn't engage. He didn't carry a pitchfork to the Capitol grounds. He didn't lead a charge. He gave a speech in which he asked people to peacefully and patriotically go to the Capitol to protest. 
At the heart of this argument is Section 3 of the 14th Amendment that disqualifies anyone who engages in, quote, insurrection or rebellion. And the group challenging Trump's eligibility is using his own words against him. They have been playing clips in their opening statements yesterday in court from his speech on election night 2020 when he falsely claimed victory, also playing video from January 6th, the day of the insurrection, where he urged his supporters to, quote, fight like hell at the Capitol. With us now, CNN senior political commentator, former Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger. He has a brand new book out, Renegade, Defending Democracy and Liberty in Our Divided Country. It is out today. Congressman, thank you. Thanks. Great Congrats on the book. Thank you. Thank you. My first and maybe only one. It's, it's quite a, a, it's it's a quite challenge. A yeah. It's a challenge. It sure is. Well, I, this case, the trial in Colorado just started, but I thought it was really interesting in, in opening statements yesterday that they've been repeatedly citing findings from your committee, from mm -hmm. the January 6th committee that you chaired. And, and in your book, you ask, is unity possible without ac accountability? Is this the venue for that accountability? Because the counterargument to it is you're disenfranchising voters yeah. by keeping them off the ballot. So my view is basically, I think they're legally justified in pursuing this. I don't think it's the best thing for the country to heal through. Because you can imagine if Donald Trump is removed from the ballot, you're making a decision not by you know, the, the election of people or the lack of election, you're making a ballot basically by a court mm -hmm. and uh, you're making a decision by a court. And I think that'll be very divisive in the long term. So by an unelected judge, it's not even yeah, a jury trial. Right. And I, I can't imagine a point at which anybody in the country or most people in the country be like, oh, OK, well, I understand that a judge found him ineligible. Therefore, we're OK with this. I just think it'll be very divisive. Regardless of what is ruled, Donald Trump has to be defeated at the ballot because that's the best way for this country to heal. That argument, and this is not quibbling with the argument you're making, but I feel like has been pervasive for six or seven years. We can't do this because mm -hmm. then the no, country I agree. won't heal. We can't pursue that. We can't do a January 6th mm -hmm. committee. We can't impeach. Mm -hmm. We can't impeach again. We can't bring charges against him. Um, what People talking about the country healing, we're not even close to figuring out what the wound is, if you want to use yeah. the analogy or the metaphor there. So how does this actually Move forward. Yeah, no, I fully agree with you. And I think I think Donald Trump should have been impeached, obviously, because of what he did. Uh, too many people in Congress, and I talk about this, made an excuse about not voting. They, oh, he's out of office. Therefore, it's not appropriate for me to vote to impeach. No, you're scared to vote to impeach. That's what it is. That was something prescribed. This argument in court, again, I'm actually supportive of the argument. I think it's correct, you know, but it's taking kind of a nuanced approach and saying he disqualified himself because of his words here and everything else. I just think the best answer is to defeat him at the ballot. But we do have to get, and I agree with you, we have to get past this point of saying, oh, we can't do this, we can't do that, because Donald Trump tried to commit a coup in this country. Let's be very clear. And if he is not prosecuted and if he's not found guilty, what we've said is, it's okay to attempt a coup as long as you failed. But if you succeed, well, you're in charge, so you can drop the charges anyway. One of uh, the striking parts of your book is how reflective you are on what you think is part of your role, mm -hmm. some of the rise of extremism. Here's what you write. I feel some responsibility for January 6th and the rise of Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene and her ilk, if only because I was a participant in it and witness to the GOP's gradual descent into a dysfunctional and destructive force in our politics. That is rare to hear um, members of Congress, even former, be that reflective and take on some blame. Is that what you're doing? Yeah, I think you have to. I think, look, if I'm going to tell my story, and I tell my story for one reason, which is I think it tells the broader story of the party. I think that's why there's an interest in where the country's gone. But you have to be self-reflective and say, 
I got this stuff wrong too. Like I'm not, I, I'm not the only guy that's ever come out of Congress. It's like, man, I just didn't get anything wrong. If I said that, then don't trust what I'm saying. And you know, I watched as the GOP began this descent, as it as it flirted with the use of fire and fear and anger and division to fundraise. And uh, I didn't speak out like I should have. And I, you know, in some cases, I even used those forces myself. It was now when I have the ability to kind of look back at the beginning to today and say, like, I should have seen these signs. I should have seen these signs. And now I'm off that train, and we've got to fix it because it's pretty bad. You hit something that really caught me in your book, um, talking about fame Mm -hmm. as a lawmaker. And watching the dissent in the 12, 13 years I covered Congress and how social media and cable news, Mm -hmm. TV hits, chasing TV hits, just totally changed the face of uh, the chamber itself. Is there any way back? From that, you've just got to like the better people. Fame's a drug, but you can and raise money through that, which I yeah, think is probably totally. the biggest di- disincentive. Exactly. So you know, when I would go on TV as a member of Congress, and if I would say something outrageous, you always get texts after you're on TV, and it feels good. Everybody saw you. You go out, and they're like, oh, "I saw you on TV," and that becomes a drug. Like the more of that you get, the more of that you need and want. And uh, what we have to do is this is like DC is not going to fix the problem. People have to demand better. Quit electing people that are performative. Quit electing people that are just trying to be cool on television and elect people that can come out and say, here's what I've accomplished. Here's what I want to accomplish. And frankly, if people outside of my district don't know my name, that's okay. Also, to that point, I want everyone to see who you dedicated the book to. I know it's small. For (laughs) Sophia and Christian, your kids, I hope I make you proud. Congratulations. They're great. Thank you. Congratulations. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Adam Kensinger. CNN This Morning continues now. A clear and firm message from Israel. No ceasefire in Gaza. Troops getting deeper. Planes bringing in airstrikes. Artillery fire like that going in. This ground operation serves the goal of getting more hostages released. Free people, peaceful people are being forced to be pawns in the game of war. We're not going to fall into the mind games of Hamas. Civil order is breaking down in Gaza. Grave violations of epic proportions are taking place. Israel needs to do everything it can to minimize the number of civilian deaths. We know there's a lot more that needs to be done. We're working very hard at this. Chilling anti-Semitic scenes are unfolding around the world. We must be loud, we must be proud, and most of all, the Jewish community must remain and continue to be Jewish. Good morning, everyone. I'm Phil Mattingly with Poppy Harlow in New York. New this morning, the number of hostages believed to be held in Gaza has gone up to 240. That's according to the Israeli military. And this comes as Israeli troops and tanks push deeper into the Gaza Strip. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is rejecting calls for a ceasefire and refusing to halt the ground and air assault to wipe out Hamas. Calls for a ceasefire are calls for Israel to surrender to Hamas, to surrender to terrorism to surrender to barbarism. That will not happen. The Bible says that there is a time for peace and a time for war. This is a time for war. The Israeli military tells CNN a special forces operation was able to rescue a hostage held in northern Gaza. She is an IDF soldier who was kidnapped during the October 7th terror attack. This is video of the emotional reunion. That's her with her grandmother. Meanwhile, on the ground in Gaza, the IDF says troops have been battling terrorist cells armed with machine guns and anti-tank missiles. As Israeli forces advance, Hamas has released a new hostage video of three Israeli women 
One of them begs Netanyahu to secure their release. Our Jake Tapper has been in contact with some of the family members and actually had an interview. We want to play that sound for you right now. These are the ones that have been kidnapped, and the bottom right is... Okay, so Le Lena... Okay. She's on the hostage video. Exactly. So let me just um, draw you the picture. So Lena is the mother of the family. Her husband, Vitali, um, was murdered. He was found um, about 10 days after this started on the outskirts of uh, Gaza. They were kidnapped together, but uh, he was shot and killed. She was kidnapped with her mother, Irena. Irena is a doctor. A pediatrician, a children's doctor. Um, as far as we know, the only doctor among the hostages, so we're pretty sure that if there are children around her, she's taking care of them. Her son, Elena's son, Sasha. Um, Sasha is an engineer, a very bright, genius-like, um, 27, and his girlfriend, Sapir. They were staying on kibbutz. It was a holiday. Which kibbutz? Nir Oz. We're going to have more with Jake and from that interview coming up. Jake's interview was with a friend of Elena. Joining me now is a cousin of Danielle. Danielle is the one in the video that criticized Netanyahu, saying, quote, you promised to release us all and then began screaming now, now, now. Obviously, we're not showing the video at this point. Uh, it was clearly under duress. Because the women are hostages, it is unclear what the circumstances are under which the video was made. Joining us now is Alana Zajcik. She has six relatives, including Danielle, uh, she believes are being held hostage by Hamas. Uh, Alana, uh, thank you for doing this. I, I can't fathom what this has been like for your family. Um, you spoke at the United Nations Security Council. Uh, this whole process, where are you right now emotionally seeing these videos, seeing some hostages released, seeing mm -hmm. others identified uh, as deceased? What are you thinking? Um, the whole experience is surreal. It's kind of the only way I've been able to describe it. It's a nightmare that we're living in. So I, it's, it's really hard to put it into words. When you see, and again, we, we aren't showing the video, mm -hmm. um, and obviously the Israelis have called it propaganda. We don't know the circumstances in which it was filmed, but you see your cousin alive. Mm -hmm. what, what, the mixed emotions, I can't even imagine. Um, on the one hand, right, there's like a level of relief to see her alive, to have that proof of life. But on the other hand, I can hear her desperation and I can see how unwell she looks. And it's heartbreaking to, to see her in this way and to hear her voice in this way, a voice that I love so much. And to hear her, you know, cry out in such desperation, it's heartbreaking. When you say, I think this is a hard part as you watch the videos, we don't know her. We, we don't know her personally. We don't mm -hmm. know her voice. We don't know how she looks, feels, acts on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. You said she sounded unwell uh, Sounded of desperation. Mm -hmm. Why? Why does she sound in no, desperation? No, no, I know why. Why, did you, why was that your takeaway from it? What did you see? I mean, I saw her crying out for help. What else can she do? My cousin is one of the strongest women I know. She's a single mother. She chose to have her baby on her own, Amelia, who's somewhere in Gaza as well. And in a way, it's almost not surprising that they picked her. She's just such a strong person. And I can see her like pushing through to do whatever she can. You know, they put her in this position to force her into this, this experience. And she's doing what she can um, to cry out for us to hear her and to be heard. And we just want to bring her back. What have you heard from Israeli officials, U.S. officials uh, about where things stand right now? We're not really receiving very much information. Um, not from the U.S. at all. 
um, to my family here in the U.S. In Israel, the IDF you know checks in on my family there pretty regularly, um, as far as I know. But I think it's challenging to get any kind of information uh, from them. Last one. What do you want people to know about your family members? I want people to know that they're innocent. They're babies. I have three-year-old twin cousins in there. Five-year-old Amelia, Emma, and Yuli. You know. My cousins Sharon and Daniel and David, they are good people. They're good civilians, peace-loving, peace-wanting people, and they deserve to come home immediately. Our hearts and prayers are with you and your family. Um, if there's anything you need going forward, please do let us know. Alana Zajic, thank you. Thank you so much. All right, let, let's go to Jake Tapper. He's in Tel Aviv. Jake, you just heard that interview. You did that remarkable interview yesterday. I mean, Alana's plea is they deserve to come home immediately. What is the Israeli government doing to do that, to accomplish that? Well, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of friction right now between the families of the hostages uh, and the Israeli government right now. I mean, obviously, when you have um, 240 uh, hostages, uh, you have 240 families, uh, and you know the people all over the map politically, uh, people all, all over the map in terms of, of emotions. But the individuals with whom I've spoken. Uh, a lot of them feel, you know, that the number one priority of the Israeli government right now should be getting the hostages back uh, and everything else should be secondary, including going after Hamas, including uh, the ground incursion, including every, you know, any any other consideration. Uh, and uh, so there is a degree of frustration. I mean, there are questions about whether or not uh, Hamas has offered any sort of a prisoner exchange for the Hamas um, individuals who are in Israeli prisons. Uh, there is a question about whether or not the ground incursion is actually making it uh, more difficult uh, to get the uh, kidnapped victims, the hostages, out of Gaza, as opposed to whether it's making it more easy. There are some, of course, in the Israeli government, in the IDF, who argue that this force makes it uh, easier to get them out. Um, but, but a lot of the families are concerned about that. So there's a lot of friction uh, right now. I will say that the fact that four hostages have been returned and a fifth, uh, that Israeli uh, soldier on Sunday, was rescued by IDF uh, does give some hope to the families. Um, but there's just a lot of anxiety uh, about the fact uh, that these individuals remain in Hamas custody, likely in the tunnels. And I will say also the fact that so many uh, around the world are calling for a ceasefire and not calling for the hostages to be released as their number one call uh, is also quite distressing to many of the families, Poppy. Jake, for Israeli officials, it seems like an impossible balancing act of prioritize the hostages, but also prioritize a response to October 7th, the ground operation that's underway. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu yesterday very forcefully rejecting those calls for a ceasefire. What's the sentiment with officials you're talking to behind the scenes about trying to establish that balance, if it's even possible at all? Well, look, the Biden administration is very clearly um, behind the scenes pushing and also, in, you know, also not just behind the scenes, but they're acknowledging uh, trying to push the Netanyahu government uh, to allow more humanitarian aid into Gaza. Uh, and they are also uh, trying to get the Americans, five to six hundred of them uh, that are trapped in Gaza out. Uh, and Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, has made it very clear 
that it is Hamas that is preventing those five to six hundred uh, Palestinian Americans and Americans who are stuck in Gaza, that is Hamas that's standing in their way. Uh, but beyond that, uh, the White House, the Biden White House has made it very clear that they do not support the calls for ceasefire that we are hearing uh, from some quarters, including uh, some Democrats on Capitol Hill uh, and uh, from world leaders, especially uh, Arab world leaders, uh, and that they do think that that would give Hamas uh, both the, B the Netanyahu government and also the Biden government think that a ceasefire would give Hamas time to regroup. And the argument is uh, that Israel has an, uh, every, every right to defend itself and that what happened on October 7th uh, is very clearly the government of Gaza, and Hamas is that, the government of Gaza, sent into Israel a force, uh, whether you call them freedom fighters or whether you call them terrorists, they sent in a force that killed 1,400 individuals, most of them civilians, uh, and that Israel has a right to respond to that government. Uh, that's, the, that's the view of the, of the Biden administration. That's the view of the, of the Netanyahu administration. Yeah, they, they certainly sound very aligned on, on that. Jake, thanks so much for joining us from Tel Aviv. We'll get back to you soon. And we are getting a closer look at what this ground operation looks like. Next, CNN is live right near the front lines. Plus, new documents reveal disturbing details about the main mass shooter and the glaring red flags that went under the radar. Stay with us. So this morning, Israel Defense Forces are ramping up their ground operation inside of Gaza. Overnight, Israeli soldiers and tanks were seen pushing deeper into the Gaza Strip. This comes as Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is rejecting calls for a ceasefire, refusing to halt the ground and air assault on Hamas. Our Jeremy Diamond is live near the northern border with Gaza in Sturot, Israel. Jeremy, uh, it seems like day by day, last couple of days, they've been going in further and further. What are you seeing? Yeah, they certainly have been. It appears that Israeli forces are approaching Gaza City on several sides. They were spotted, Israeli tanks were spotted uh, south of Gaza City at a main junction at the entrance to that city. And then they also appear to be approaching from the north on two axes near the coastline and then closer to where we are. Behind me, you have the city of Beit Hanun. And I, I believe there's a fresh, uh, we just heard the thud of artillery and there is a fresh uh, plume of smoke in, in the background near some of the destroyed buildings in that northeasternmost uh, city here uh, in Gaza. Now, the IDF uh, spokesman has been characterizing the fighting over the last several days as fierce battles between uh, Israeli troops and Hamas militants, making clear that this will be a long battle and a costly battle, very much preparing the Israeli public for uh, what is to come, uh, saying that there will this will require resilience on the part of the Israeli public. Uh, the IDF says that they have struck over 300 targets in just the last day, uh, and as I said, they appear to be closing in on Gaza City on several axes. All of this as the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu makes clear that there is a time for war and a time for peace. He said that now is a time for war, rejecting calls from other world leaders 
for a potential ceasefire. And amid the news uh, that that uh, Israeli uh, soldier was freed in an Israeli ground operation uh, overnight uh, the previous day, uh, making clear that he also believes that Israeli ground operations also open up the possibility of freeing additional hostages, effectively rejecting the criticism that this Israeli ground operation puts those hostages uh, at risk, saying that it uh, opens up the possibility to potentially free more, and that it also ramps up the pressure on Hamas, strengthening the Israeli hand at the negotiating table. We know that those negotiations are still ongoing with uh, Qatar and the United States trying to mediate a potential deal to free some of those civilian hostages, at least. Phil, Bobby? Certainly we heard from R.J. Tapper how crucial it is to those families that releasing the hostages be the number one call. Jeremy, thank you for the reporting right there on the border. Well, there are new details coming to light on what police and the military knew about the main shooter before he took the lives of 18 innocent people. Also, the cast of Friends this morning speaking out for the first time after the sudden death of their co-star, Matthew Perry. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. If law enforcement uh, doesn't use the tools that are available to them, what are, how are people supposed to feel safe? You're reporting on reports, and I know it's... No, it's my report. Excuse me, so. excuse me. You're reporting on something that has not been finally determined. We know that there is an alarming concern from the law enforcement community that activity and information here was ignored. And the simple answer is, why was that done, and are you concerned about that? I think those kinds of facts are yet to be determined. You're making assumptions. I'm not willing to make those assumptions. That was CNN's indefatigable Shimon Prokopaz pressing Maine's governor, Democrat Janet Mills, on concerns that law enforcement ignored red flags in the months before the Lewiston mass shootings. And just hours later, the county sheriff's office confirmed Shimon's reporting, clarifying details about what police and the military knew in the weeks and months before the gunman, Robert Carr, killed 18 people at a bowling alley and a bar. Almost six months ago, the gunman's son and ex-wife contacted the sheriff's office to report that his mental health was, quote, in question, reporting he was hearing voices in his head saying derogatory things about him and that he recently picked up 10 to 15 handguns and rifles from his brother's house. Officers in his Army Reserve unit shared those concerns. Also, after a medical evaluation in July, the Army declared that he, quote, should not have a weapon and was, quote, non-deployable over concerns of his well-being. He also spent 14 days over the summer at a psychiatric hospital. Police visited Card's home twice in September after his Army unit reported, quote, Card is having psychotic episodes where he's hearing voices that are insulting him, calling him a pedophile. Card is also making threats to shoot up the Seiko National Guard facility. Andy McCabe is with us, CNN Senior Law Enforcement Analyst. Those are the facts, by the way. The governor said what she said. But what Shimon reported are the facts that were then verified by the, by the sheriff's office. You also have the reporting from, from the Army there. It's the people who have lost so much. I want you to listen to Leroy Walker Sr. He is the father of Joey, who was killed in the restaurant. He was on with us Friday in just a heartbreaking conversation. And now here's what he says about all the signs that were missed. I think we've seen enough facts to know that they totally missed what this man was capable of doing. They should have removed this man's guns immediately. This man went rampant on people saying that he was gonna do this. And we still let him run around two or three months later. 
Is he right? Yeah, he's absolutely right. He's absolutely right. What we know so far, Poppy, is an unbelievably alarming series of, as you say, facts that indicate many people from his family to local law enforcement to his supervisors in the Army Reserves knew that he was suffering and knew that that suffering created a great danger to other people. What what didn't happen here was actually, you know, proactive action that would have taken him away from those weapons. Now, the complicating factor is it's also not 100 percent clear how they would have done that legally, because we're talking about Maine and Maine does not have a red flag law. So. You know, you look first to the psychiatric treatment that he received in July. Well, the FBI has already told us that there was no entries in any of the systems, the background check systems that would have prohibited him from purchasing additional weapons. That means even though he was treated in a facility, he was not adjudicated a mental defective. There was no court that demanded that sort of treatment. Maybe it wasn't an involuntary commitment. We'd really have to see the, the records to know that. But nevertheless, that's the first big miss. There's no record of, of an involuntary commitment that would have prohibited him from buying guns. And then the second miss here is Maine doesn't have a red flag law. So in a state with a red flag law, back in May, when his family members went to law enforcement and said, we're really worried about him, he's struggling, and he has 10 to 15 guns, if there were a red flag law, they could have gone in front of a judge right away and removed those weapons. Maine doesn't have that. They have a yellow flag law that requires that he be taken into custody and evaluated. And for whatever reason, law enforcement did not do that. You know, the, to that point, Andy, and yes, the yellow flag law has a couple more steps to it, including a law enforcement official having to sign, I believe, an affidavit, a medical professional as well. As you are noting, everything that we know about what happened in this process seems to lead one to believe that those were acceptable or possible thresholds to clear in this case. And I think the, the question I have is, we've seen this play out so many times where this turns into a battle between agencies on whose fault it is, or bureaucratic problems, things weren't entered into the NICS system. I don't know that I've ever seen something so clear cut that shouldn't get spun away as agencies infighting or bureaucracy. This was a disastrous failure. No question. You are absolutely right. It was a failure that resulted in a disgusting massacre of violence. There's, this is the worst one of these I've seen maybe since the South Carolina uh, shoot, church shooter. But nevertheless, what we need here is for the authorities in Maine to get together, pull these facts together, add to them the things that we don't know yet, and be transparent about saying exactly what happened. There was failure here, no question. Um, and now this community and these families have a right to know how this happened because it's important to know how it's not gonna happen in the future. And until we have that level of transparency and accountability, I don't think you can have any faith that it won't happen again. Yeah, it's such a valuable point. Uh, Andy McCabe, we appreciate your expertise as always, thank you. We do, have, we do have some new details uh, surrounding the death of friend star Matthew Perry. The Los Angeles Fire Department says firefighters found Perry, quote, unconscious in a standalone jacuzzi. A bystander had brought his head above the water and gotten him to the edge. Firefighters removed him from the water when they arrived. 
A rapid medical assessment sadly revealed he was deceased prior to the first responders' arrival. And the cast of Friends released a joint statement that reads in part, quote, We are all so utterly devastated by the loss of Matthew. We were more than just castmates. We are a family. There is so much to say, but right now we're going to take a moment to grieve and process this unfathomable loss. Perry reflected the bond between castmates in HBO's Friends reunion special in 2021. Just watch. The best way that I can describe it is after the show was over at a party or any, any kind of social gathering, if one of us bumped into each other, that was it. That was the end of the night. You just sat with, that sat with the person mm -hmm. all night sure. long. I remember that. And that was it. You apologized to the people you were with, but they had to understand you had met somebody special to you and you were going to talk to that person for the rest of the night. <laughs> Someone special to you. The executive producer friends, Kevin Bright, spoke with our colleague Laura Coates last night. It really was a family kind of situation. And uh, I think, you know, with for Matthew, with all of his, his troubles over the years, I think this cast really, uh, you know, supported him in a way that allowed him to be the comic genius that he was. Hmm. He was such a gift on our TV screens, but right. to so many people in need in those final years of his life. And I feel like the cast was home base for totally. him, too. And I love that. Totally. Okay, back to the war, the death in Gaza, the death toll mounting, many of those dead children. The CEO of a group dedicated to providing support to Palestinian children is with us next. Welcome back. The humanitarian crisis in Gaza is deepening as Israel continues its offensive in the Gaza Strip and the war disproportionately impacting the children of Gaza who make up more than half of the enclave's population. We do want to warn you some of the images you will see throughout this segment. They're very difficult to see, but they're also very important to see. CNN obtained video from inside of Gaza. It shows children killed during the war, their names written in Arabic on their legs just so they could be identified. It is a practice, the photographer who captured those images told CNN, that has become much more common. According to Gaza's health ministry, which we should note is controlled by Hamas, more than 3,000 children have been killed since this war began. The organization Save the Children says that number is higher than the annual number of children killed in conflict, conflict zones around the world since 2019. With me now is the CEO and the president of Save the Children, Yanti Saripto. Her organization has 25 staffers on the ground in Gaza as we speak. Good morning to you. Hi. We know that Israel has said, okay, more aid can come in, 100 trucks a day. Yep. It's about a fifth of what normally comes into That's Gaza. Right. Is that aid getting to the kids? Well, it's welcome that the number has gone up, for sure. Um, is it going to be enough? We'll see. We need to now get it to kids. I would note, though, that as long as we don't have fuel coming in, it's going to be difficult to actually get the distribution up and running in the way that we normally do. Talk about that, because that has been the key sticking point. There have been some U.S. lawmakers, um, Democrat Chris Murphy told us on this show, you got to let fuel in. The position of the Israeli government is no. Hamas takes the fuel, they say. We will not let it in. What happens if fuel is not allowed into Gaza to children? To children. So our team in Gaza, who are still safe and accounted for, are now essentially calculating how much supplies they can carry on their shoulders, on their backs, in order to get it to distribution centers. Instead of, you know, nor as would normally be, we would, A of truck, course, truck it, it. Uh, everywhere. Fuel also doesn't, um, 
you know, if you don't have fuel, you don't have ambulances. You don't have incubators taking care of premature babies. You don't have dialysis machines. So a lot of things don't work without fuel. The bakeries that are supported by the World Food Programme cannot make bread. Mm -hmm. So without fuel, a lot of that aid is... It's great that the number of trucks has gone up, but a lot of that aid will not be effective. I, I would love your reaction to something that President Biden said a couple of days ago, because it is important to note that the, that the, the Palestinian health ministry, Gaza health ministry, is controlled by Hamas, a terrorist organization. Yes. They're the ones putting the numbers out about how many have been killed. Here's what President Biden said. I have no notion that the Palestinians are telling the truth about how many people are killed. I'm sure innocents have been killed, and it's the price of waging a war. But I have no confidence in the number that the Palestinians are using. Do you have any thoughts on that, particularly when it comes to, comes to children? Does your team have any count? Look, we have 25 people there. Uh, they're trying to stay alive, and they're trying to get supplies to children. Um, I always think there's a million children in Gaza, half of the population, as you just said, all packed into an enormously yeah. small area. So the density is incredible, many times higher than in New York City. So when you see the level of destruction and the damage that's done, you know, we know that thousands of innocent people, children and families, are being hurt. What the exact number is, we can't independently verify it, and right. nobody has been able to do that for, uh, for, forever. Um, but whatever that number is, we think it's too high. Too high. The number of kids that are dying and injured are, is way too high, and we would like that number to not go up even further. And even the pain for the children who have not physically been in, injured, the, the mental toll, our colleague, a CNN producer, Ibrahim Dahman, is stuck in Gaza. Mm -hmm with his children yeah. and he told us that he and his wife are teaching their children how to cook and survive in case they die. Mm -hmm. These are little children and one of the questions right now is, is Israel doing everything it can to prevent these deaths? Here's what John Kirby from the White House told us is the U.S. assessment of that. Here he, here he was just yesterday. Uh, but Israel is not deliberately trying to kill civilians. They are going after Hamas. We want to make sure that they do it in a cautious, careful, deliberate way. Uh, but it is not a war aim of Israel to kill innocent civilians. Cautious, careful, deliberate. Is that what your teams are witnessing on the ground? I think it's very difficult to be cautious, careful and deliberate in such an incredibly densely packed urban area. And I think inevitably children are going to bear the brunt of it, as in every conflict around the world, children are bearing the brunt. But the numbers here are staggering yeah. and disproportionate. And people forget how young the population of Gaza is. Yeah. How can people help? How can people help? Uh, as always, fantastic if people could go to uh, savethechildren.org. You can see how to help. There's updates there. Stay informed. Stay informed. If you feel compelled to give to any organization who helps in that area, also in Israel, donate if you, if you can, if you want, but also stay informed. Talk to your legislators about the need for a ceasefire, about the need to stop the violence so that not more children die. Auntie Sarupto, thank you for being here, but even more for the work you do for these kids. Thank you so much. Appreciate it.
Well, the IDF now says that there are over 240 hostages in Gaza. Several are Americans. How the current Israeli ground invasion complicates President Biden's effort to recover those who are trapped. We're going to speak with Republican presidential hopeful Governor Chris Christie in our 8 a.m. hour on the situation in Gaza. Stay with us. Hamas is holding over 200 Israeli hostages, including 33 children. Every civilized nation should stand with Israel and demanding that these hostages be freed immediately. Israel's ground efforts continue. Sources say the Biden administration, though, remains focused on trying to secure the release of hostages being held by Hamas in Gaza. Sources are now telling CNN that the task is further complicated by that expansion of Israel's ground operations into the territory. One senior U.S. official telling CNN on Monday that they believe prospects of getting hostages out could be described as 50-50. White officials have also been calling on Israel to consider so-called humanitarian pauses to allow for civilians and hostages to exit Gaza and for aid to get in. Although both Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and the White House agree a complete ceasefire is not on the table right now. Joining us at the table, CNN Senior Global Affairs Analyst Bianca Golodriga. Good morning. Great to have Thank you. you. There's a difference of view on how best to get them out. Uh, Netanyahu is essentially saying no ceasefire. And by the way, us going in on the ground, you know, will give us more of a chance of getting them out. And then there's the other view that is you have to have a humanitarian pause and continuing these strikes and going in on the ground puts their lives and hostages' lives more at risk here. Yeah. Where does this go? Listen, it's in Yahoo's facing pressure from the families of the hostages and obviously international pressure to allow for at least some sort of pause. I don't think any Western allies are seriously pushing him for a ceasefire right now, even though we do hear that word used a lot. And he was asked that directly yesterday at that press conference. But as far as the humanitarian pause, his argument was we we have a safe passage, an area for civilians in the south of Gaza. So to quote him, not one civilian has to die. As we know from our reporting, it is very difficult on the ground there. And so even those that have been able to go to the south are coming under a, a lot of strains there, trying to get any aid and, and just moving. And our a million producer people. filmed airstrikes in Khan Yunus. Right. And there have been IDF strikes at the Rafah crossing. Right. So it, it's a bit oversimplified to say that no one has to die and all you have to do is move south. That having been said, the prime minister spoke to history and said, what did the United States do after 9-11? What did the United States do after Pearl Harbor? There wasn't a ceasefire. The mission was to go after the terrorists that attacked us. Mm -hmm. And in his view, a ceasefire would only be a victory for Hamas. And that is why the Israelis, under pressure uh, from the families of the hostages and internal Israeli polling as well, shows that there is a lot of concern about the fate of these hostages as this operation expands. We saw one soldier rescued yesterday. That was good news and reassuring. But obviously, you know, you've got over 200 other hostages that are spread throughout Gaza. And so the focus, the Israelis say, is not only the operation, but the rescue. We'll see. Yana, the regional player that comes up in almost every conversation I have with U.S. officials or Western diplomats is Iran, yeah. obviously, for proxies, because it supports Hamas, because it's Iran generally. You sat down with the foreign minister of Iran, asked him about the attack. What did he tell you? Well, I asked him a lot of tough questions and the questions we all want answers to. I can't say that he was forthright in all of his responses. But, you know, we asked him specifically. First of all, he was here in New York speaking at the U.N. and 
a veiled threat against the United States <clears throat> if the U.S. helped Israel in their expansion of their war into Gaza. And I asked him directly, you know, this is going to happen. Israel said that they are going after Hamas. Do you really think that you can take on the U.S.? I don't know exactly which sound we have from him, but let's play and I can speak it's, to it regardless of it is. It is that one. Okay. Did Iran play any role, direct or indirect, in the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel? You know, what happened on 7th of October in the occupied territories of Palestine, it was a decision that was made by the Palestinians alone. And since the country was occupied, they thought that it was a natural right to, to defend their own territories, to carry out the operation. That was a totally Palestinian operation. So, of course, the, their response is, our hands are clean. The, this is a Palestinian fight. We support the Palestinian cause. He admitted, and the U.S. Treasury Department has said for years that uh, the Iranians have been funding Hamas and other terror groups, including Hezbollah. But uh, there had been some reporting now, uh, subsequently since the attack, that, that showed that there had been Hamas fighters trained in Iran specifically. There had been certain meetings that took place in the spring that led to people concluding that perhaps Iran played more of a direct role in this mm -hmm. attack. Both U.S. and Israeli uh, intelligence have not made that link specifically to October 7th, but we know that there is a vast history here, and the focus now will be what will Iran do to increase any sort of attacks that we see since Israel has expanded its operation. Obviously, that focuses on Hezbollah. Yeah, no question. Um, very important interview. Bianca Goldria, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So also, a sharp uptick in anti-Semitic attacks happening in America and around the world. The threats and fear, especially right now on college campuses, that's next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, brand new this morning, a Nevada man is under arrest after investigators say he sent threatening and anti-Semitic voice messages to Nevada Senator Jackie Rosen. She's Jewish and has been vocal about the war in Israel since it began. And she received messages saying, quote, we're going to finish what Hitler started and you done chose evil. We're going to exterminate you. The suspect, Anthony Miller, is now charged with one count of threatening a federal official. This comes as Senator Rosen's colleague, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, is condemning a different anti-Semitic incident at Cornell in his home state of New York. The incident targeting Cornell's Jewish community is utterly revolting, but unfortunately, it was not an isolated occurrence. Across the country, on campuses and public spaces, the ancient poison of anti-Semitism has found new life. Certainly has. Here are just some examples of that anti-Semitism Senator Schumer is referring to from just the past day in Atlanta. An anti-Semitic slogan was projected onto an overpass. In California, a Holocaust survivor's home was vandalized with hateful anti-Semitic graffiti. In Florida, witnesses said five people in ski masks shouted, kill the Jews at worshipers leaving temple. Well, we want to bring in, bring back Bianca Goldriga now, because this has been something that is obviously ancient poison, I think is probably when Majority yeah. Leader Schumer was talking about it, is certainly accurate.
but it's also been rising over the course of the last several years. We can see it in the anti-Semitic uh, events that have taken place that law enforcement mm -hmm. talks about. But beyond that, what we've seen in particular on college campuses over the course of the last several weeks, I, I don't know if there's much precedent for it in recent history. I don't remember seeing anything like this. We surely didn't when we were on college campus. No. And I mean, shame on these university heads and leadership at these schools from all over the country, because we're seeing these so images why, coming. Though, why, are, why are leaders, uh, school presidents, school boards uh, at these large universities afraid to speak unequivocally about things like this? I don't know. There are plenty of other issues they felt that they can address head on. And yet when it comes to the issue of anti-Semitism, there's always this veiled, well, it's complicated, it, there, you know, it's Israel, it's Zionism. No, it is unadulterated anti-Semitism. And when you're speaking out about Hamas murdering not just Israelis, they murdered Jews. You have to just say that outright. That is an issue that's affecting Jews around the world. And now it's created a scenario, and we've talked about it on this show, and God bless the United States of America, and I am so happy to live in the U.S. as a Jew. But to have conversations with family members, with friends, with loved ones, what are you doing? Are you taking your mezuzah down? What are you talking to your yeah. college students about? It is unacceptable. Are we kidding ourselves? In 2023, there's no other issue, whether they're social justice movements, anything else that we've looked forward as progressive citizens of the world that we haven't addressed head on. And yet this is the one issue we keep coming back to that we have to be, you know, sort of equivocal about here. And it, that there's nothing to hold us back from standing up for the rights of Jews, the rights of Muslims, the rights of all minorities and say in this environment, in this day and age, it is unacceptable yeah. to be saying death to Jews, death to right. Israelis, death to Zionism, whatever it is. But every morning there's a pit in my stomach waking yeah. up and seeing these headlines. And look, if you're gonna say never again, we have to remember what was October 7th? That was the biggest slaughter of Jews since the Holocaust yeah. in a single day. Yeah. And, and all of a sudden there, there wasn't even a 24 hour period of mourning before yeah. it became victim blaming two sides to this story. No, it is not difficult for college campus leadership to come out and say what happened on October 7th was a massacre, it was unacceptable, and we will do everything we can to protect our Jewish students just as well as we will protect our Muslim students and every other minorities on our campuses. Diana, thank you very, very much. And we do want to continue this conversation with the CEO of the American Jewish Committee, Ted Deutsch. He is a former Democratic congressman from Florida. Uh, we just talked about, Congressman, the, the incident that, that was reported happening in Florida, and it's one of many. I, I'd like your take on what our, our other colleague, um, Stephen Collinson, writes in his column this morning. Quote, the idea that Jewish Americans studying at Cornell University could so fear for their lives on their Ivy League campus in rural New York that they couldn't even eat together in 2023 seems almost impossible to believe. Yet that is the reality for them right now. It, it's outrageous. It is. Uh, it's terrifying. And most of all, it's just unacceptable. You are exactly that your columnist is exactly right. How is it that Jewish lives uh, don't seem to matter as much as others? Cornell is one example. Those threats are horrific to see. It's, there's a reason that Jewish students at Cornell were so worried. But look what's happening every place else. Look at Jewish students being, uh, being barricaded into a, a library at Cooper Union. Look at, look at Columbia professors justifying what happened 
on October 7th as a military action. The slaughter of 1,400 people, men, women, children, women raped, bodies desecrated, children burned alive. There is a problem on too many college campuses of trying to figure out if there's some way to thread a needle here that somehow maybe we don't have to talk about this horrific terror attack, that maybe we can help Jewish students without coming full square behind them and saying that we will not tolerate anti-Semitism on our campus, period, end of story. You cannot thread a needle. You have to be as full-throated in defense of Jewish students as you are in defense of every other student on campus. But if I can just explain why this makes so much sense, why, why when campuses have people protesting, chanting from the river to the sea, which is a chant that envisions Israel without Jews in it, which is Hamas's goal, or intifada, intifada. Well, this century, the second intifada in Israel killed a thousand civilians with bombings at bus stops, on buses, at cafes, at pizza places. The language, the rhetoric being used in support of Hamas is dangerous and must be called out everywhere, by university presidents, by elected officials, by everyone who understands that we have an obligation, not just to protect the Jewish community, but to stand squarely against terrorism, the kind that we experienced in our own country not that long ago, uh, and that we need to stand against wherever it occurs, especially when there are Americans who were killed and Americans who are still being held hostage. We've got to come together on this issue. Former Congressman Ted Deutsch, uh, I wish we had more time. We'll have you back soon, and thank you for that. Thank you. We do have breaking news. Israeli forces say an airstrike has killed a Hamas commander, the commander that helped direct the massacre on two areas right near the Gaza border on October 7th. This comes as Israeli troops push deeper into Gaza, and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu rejects calls for a ceasefire. Calls for a ceasefire are calls for Israel to surrender to Hamas, to surrender to terrorism, to surrender to barbarism. That will not happen. The Bible says that there is a time for peace and a time for war. This is a time for war. Israel's military announcing the first rescue of a hostage held in Gaza. The IDF telling CNN a special forces operation was able to free an Israeli soldier who was abducted during the October 7th terror attack. This is a video from the emotional re reunion with her grandmother. Meanwhile, on the ground in Gaza, the IDF says troops have been battling terrorist cells armed with machine guns and anti-tank missiles. Also, Israeli forces as they advance, Hamas has released a new hostage video. This is of three Israeli women. One of them was held captive, is begging Netanyahu to secure their release. This morning, we spoke with her cousin. So we are also this morning seeing Israeli forces on the move in the occupied West Bank today. I want to show you some of that. That's an Aruri in the West Bank. It's video obtained by CNN of the IDF demolishing the house of a Hamas leader in the West Bank. Let's start our coverage this hour with Jerry Diamond. He joins us 
Jeremy, what, what can you tell us? We just showed some of the new advances that Israel is making, both from the air and on the ground. Yeah, well, we have been hearing uh, the steady thud of artillery continuing this morning as uh, this expanded ground operation now enters its fifth day. Uh, what is clear is that there is still ongoing and intense fighting inside the northern part of the Gaza Strip between Israeli forces and Hamas militants. We have been hearing machine gun fire uh, all throughout the morning as well as yesterday as Israeli forces make advances on Gaza City through several different axes. What is clear is that Israeli troops uh, have been spotted south of Gaza City at a main junction entering the city. They have also been spotted uh, behind me near the city of Beit Hanun in the northeasternmost part of Gaza as well as at least two miles into Gaza on the coastline, uh, the western part of the Gaza Strip. So clearly advancing on several different axes. And what's clear is that they're proceeding quite deliberately, quite slowly, as they try and take out some of those reinforced positions of Hamas fighters. And what's also interesting is that Israeli forces on the ground appear to be making pretty significant use of close air support, more so than in previous operations, as Israeli troops on the ground spot reinforced Hamas positions and then call in uh, airstrikes. We've also seen several helicopters, Apache gunships being used to fire missiles at various targets uh, inside uh, the Gaza Strip. All of this, as Israel's prime minister vows that this is not the time for a ceasefire, saying that this is a time for war. Israel's military and political leadership all appear to be united in taking out Hamas, removing it from control of the Gaza Strip, and also making very clear to the Israeli public that this will come at a cost. It will be a long battle in order to to achieve those objectives. Jeremy, what do we know about the Hamas commander the IDF says they killed? Because this was one of the commanders who led the attack on Kibbutz Erez on the 7th of October. Yeah, Poppy. Well, even as Israel's military operations have been heavily focused here in the Gaza Strip, they have also been trying to uh, essentially tamp down on any uh, potential outbursts of fighting inside the West Bank. They have arrested uh, over 1,500 Palestinians in recent weeks. And now we're learning that the IDF has also demolished the house of Saleh al-Aruri, who is effectively the de facto commander of Hamas in the West Bank, although he is believed uh, to be living in uh, Lebanon. Uh, but in new video uh, that you can see here, uh, the Israeli military demolishing that home. That is a tactic that the Israeli military has used in the past, typically with uh, uh, terrorists who carry out attacks. They then go ahead and demolish their homes. That's something that's been done in the West Bank uh, over uh, recent years. So you can see them doing that as they try and avoid uh, a broader conflagration happening in the West Bank. And we know that as the Israeli military has focused its efforts here in the Gaza Strip, they're also very wary of this turning into a broader conflict, whether that is in the West Bank, in East Jerusalem, mm -hmm. in northern Israel with Hezbollah in the north, and also, of course, carrying out airstrikes on uh, weapons depots and supply lines in Syria, which Iran has used to supply its proxies in the region. So we are actively monitoring all of these different fronts. Uh, as of now, the hottest front is right here in Gaza. But of course, there is a risk of it turning into a broader conflict. There certainly is. Jeremy Diamond, thanks for all the reporting. Phil. Joining us now is Mark Regev, senior advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. We appreciate your time. I, I want to start with the breaking news that we just learned from uh, the IDF that uh, senior Hamas commander who uh, allegedly was directed and was behind the massacre uh, at Kibbutz Erez had been killed. What more can you tell us about that? I can't go beyond uh, the official statement, but I can tell you what our policy is. 
that all the people involved in the massacre of our people, all the people involved in the terrible atrocities of, of September 7th, when they stormed the border, they, they, they slaughtered our people, they, they raped, they beheaded, uh, they burnt people alive so badly, we still can't identify some of the bodies. Anyone in, involved in those atrocities, we will find them, we will punish them, and uh, uh, anyone uh, uh, involved whatsoever, we will take them out. As part of the ongoing ground operation, the airstrikes, or is there a separate assassination effort program underway? Uh, I can't uh, go into specific uh, details, precisely because the operation is still ongoing, and I don't want to give any information to our enemy. Hamas is a fanatical and brutal enemy. We've seen that in their behavior. We see that in the way they conduct themselves. We see that in the way they're holding, uh, what is it, 238 hostages. Uh, we, will, we will bring justice to Hamas, and that means taking out their leadership, their command, and the people responsible for the terrible atrocities we saw on October 7th. You note the hostages. There was a hostage that was uh, recovered uh, in a special operation by Israeli forces, I believe the first of its kind, at least that we are aware of. Does this indicate that your forces are getting better visibility into where the hostages may be right now? So obviously we're making a maximum effort to free hostages. There are two, two parallel tracks going on. On the one hand, of course, where we can locate a hostage, we will act to free them. That's our commitment to each and every one of the hostages. And of course, at the same time, we're beefing up the overall military pressure on Hamas, making them feel the pain. We believe pressure is the way to get our hostages out. Uh, they're not going to suddenly become Boy Scouts. They're not going to become a humanitarian organization. They are cynically uh, have taken people hostages after abducting them. Uh, we believe the only way we're going to get our people out is to ratchet up that pressure together with diplomatic pressure on their allies in the Gulf we think that's the key to getting people out. How would you assess uh, Qatar's efforts uh, as a mediator or as a partner in trying to negotiate the release of hostages the last several weeks? Well, so far we've got four out. I mean, we released, we rescued one of our own, but so right. far the, through, through that sort of framework, we've got four out out of 238. So they should be doing more? Could be higher. We don't know. Uh, let's just say this, if they want to say they're doing a good job, I think the proof of the pudding remains to be in the eating and we have to see what happens. Uh, I want to ask, there's been a, a, a lot of discussion about humanitarian aid, the availability of humanitarian aid from U.S. officials, uh, especially we had a, a, the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs yesterday at the U.N. called for the opening of a, a different border crossing, Karim Shalom, which has been closed. Uh, saying that that would uh, significantly affect the ability to send trucks through. That has been closed. Is that something that Israel would consider? The truth is the Rafah closing, we're expediting the massive increase uh, from that crossing. Uh, I think yesterday we had double the number of trucks we had. We're expecting that number to go up again and again. So we've got a network that is working, and we now have to just put in more uh, trucks through that network in Israel is willing for that to happen and it works well from that particular crossing point because the safe zone that we're suggesting that the internally displaced Palestinian civilians go to is precisely by there. It's in the southern end of the Gaza Strip, right near the Rafah crossing, uh, close to the coast. Uh, that's the goal and we're working with the international community to make that happen. 
Uh, just last one on the ground operation. There were estimates that there are about 10,000 troops perhaps in Gaza. Some estimates have been as much as double that. Can you give us a rough estimate of how many troops are actually in, on the ground in Gaza? And if this is kind of the full scale uh, of the ground operation in terms of size and personnel? I'm sorry, but I'm not at liberty to go into that sort of detail. But I can tell you who else is in Gaza. I understand there are some 600 American passport holders who, the, who, who America has asked for them to leave and we're willing to have for it to happen. And I understand the Egyptians are too, but Hamas is holding them. How not so? Like the Can you explain that? Actually, sir, I'm sorry to interrupt. Um, the, the, what is Hamas doing? This has been something we've heard constantly from U.S. officials. Hamas is the one that's holding it. What are they doing? Because U.S., those passport holders on the ground they, say they don't hear from Hamas. So what is happening? The, the, it's clear that Hamas is preventing them leaving. The Hamas controls the Gaza side of the Rafah crossing. And no one can leave Gaza without Hamas's okay, without Hamas's permission. And they are dying, denying permission to those American passport holders. They're denying permission to other dual nationals who we've, we've okayed. We, we don't have any problem with them leaving. And Egypt has no problem receiving them. But Hamas wants to keep them as, as, as also as hostages. It, it's a dangerous game. They're not being held in dungeons like the Israelis are being held underground. Yes, they are free to walk around, but they can't leave Gaza. And that is because Hamas has made a decision that they can't. Mark Rogev, senior advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Thank you, sir, for your time. Phil, thank My you. Pleasure. Thank you for that, Phil, and trying to get really important clarity on why they cannot get out. This morning also politics in the U.S. There is a long shot trial. It resumes in Colorado that could get President Trump off the ballot. And with Mike Pence dropping out of the White House race, are other GOP candidates feeling better about their chances with less competition? Republican presidential candidate Chris Christie joins us live on set to discuss. Stay with us. Our Constitution prevents people who betrayed their solemn oath, as Trump did here, from serving in office again. Trump engaged in insurrection and therefore cannot appear on the ballot. No person, not even the former president, is above the law. That was attorney Eric Olson speaking in a Colorado courtroom on Monday. Olson is representing a group of Colorado voters who are challenging whether former President Trump is eligible to be president again. The long shot trial resumes this morning. It centers on a section of the 14th Amendment that disqualifies anyone who engaged in a, quote, insurrection or rebellion from holding federal office. Challengers used Trump's own words against him on the first day of this trial, playing clips from his speech on election night 2020 when he falsely claimed victory, and from January 6, where he urged his supporters to, quote, fight like hell at the Capitol. With us this morning in the studio, Republican presidential candidate Chris Christie. Governor, good to have you. Uh, you, you said it was that night, election night 2020. You're sitting on the set at ABC News, your contributor, and that's the moment when you decided no longer can I back, back this yep. guy. Do you think, as you're a lawyer, as you read Section 3 mm -hmm. of the 14th Amendment, do you think that that precludes Trump from serving as president? I don't. Um, I don't. I, I think you'd have to be convicted of insurrection or rebellion, not just accused of it. Uh, and so I don't think it does it. Um, okay, can we play this out? Yeah. If convicted, because this has been used against two convicted uh, people from the insurrection, both in, I think it's New Mexico and West Virginia, and they have been removed from lower offices, though, because of this. Would that hold for a convicted Trump? If sure, sure it would, if he were convicted of it. But the problem is, even in the January 6th federal case, 
he hasn't been charged with insurrection or rebellion. That's right. So there's not going to be a verdict against him on that. And, and, and I think on a, a, in a bigger way, I think it would be bad for the country for him to be removed from the ballot on what would be seen by a lot of people as a legal technicality. I think the much better way to go about it is to beat him. I don't think he has any business being president of the United States again. And I think we have to defeat him at the ballot box because you see the way he was when he was defeated at the ballot box. He wouldn't accept it. Can you imagine if a judge or a group of judges kicked him off the ballot? Um, it would it would cause such tumult in this country that I would much rather have him defeated in an election uh, than this way. And because of the way he's charged, I don't think it could happen. Mm. Um, we want to talk about policy. Uh, in particular, foreign policy, obviously, given what we've been covering mm. the last several weeks. Um, there have been, I think, almost two dozen attacks on U.S. bases or U.S. troops deployed in the region by Iranian proxies over the course of the last several weeks. The U.S. has uh, struck back uh, in at least one case in Syria. Um, is that enough? Do you believe that President Biden's response to those proxy attacks uh, meets where it should be right now? Look, I think that we have to make really clear to Iran uh, any more of these games and things are going to get a lot heavier for them. And I think the president needs to use that language. I think he has to let them know um, that these type of attacks, while maybe not directly connected to what's going on in Gaza, um, we know the game they're playing. And they're trying to incite regional war. So it's a very fine line to walk when you're president. Um, but you can't allow uh, any other country, even through surrogates, to indiscriminately attack American men and women in uniform. So they continue to do that kind of stuff and it causes death or injury, right. then you got to strike back harder. But what more? So they've sent two carrier groups. Obviously, they have a rapid response force of Marines that have all moved in the region precisely to try and stop uh, act, regional actors from acting. There have been airstrikes hitting Syrian Iranian proxies. What more would you do? You have to do more of it. Um, look, I think the, the carriers is, is a deterrence for everybody, but it's not a response to attacks on American fighting men and women. So what you're going to need to do is, if this continues, you're going to have to increase the level of airstrikes and increase drone strikes and do that to continue to let them know that if they do this, there's going to be a price to pay with their personnel. Uh, we don't want to do that, mm -hmm. but we will have to do it if they go and they hurt American men and fighting men, men and women who are fighting for our country. Where, though? John Bolton, who served while you were in the Trump administration, you know, has for a long time been saying to stop Iran, bomb Iran. I mean, he even wrote a piece as such. Are you talking about more strikes like the Syria strikes on Iran proxies? Or are you talking about in Iran? Because if you were president, it'd be your call. Sure. No, I'm talking about Iran proxies. Look, if the attacks are from Iran proxies, then you attack those Iran proxies and debilitate them from being able to do that again. Um, I don't think you escalate it, given what's happened so far. Now, if there were to be significant loss of life, then it becomes, and you can directly connect that to Iran, then it becomes a different story. But based on what we're doing right now, yeah. I think you still go back at the Iran proxies. But what you do is you increase the, the lethality of that. You make it more lethal um, for them in terms of destroying their capability to attack us and hurting or injuring their folks if that's what they're doing ours. Uh, House Republicans have proposed $14 billion for Israel to the number that President Biden asked for, but they're not including Ukraine funding, and they're proposing to pay for it by rescissions to the IRS, which would actually end up costing more money to some degree. Do you agree with their approach right now? What, uh, what I think is that it's a typical negotiating tactic when you have a divided Congress, right? So they know that the Democrats in the Senate are not going to agree 
to exactly that proposal. Do they? Yeah, they do. They do. All of them? Uh, well, it doesn't matter if all of them, a majority of them know. Um, and I, I think the speaker certainly knows um, that that's not going to happen. So you set out a marker in a negotiation. This is what we would like uh, on our best day. The Democrats in the Senate are going to do that. And then you've got to negotiate what's going to happen in between. And I think the president needs to get involved in that because of the importance of the Israel aid package. Now, on Ukraine, I would support it being done together. But I'm encouraged by the fact that the new speaker has said he supports aid to Ukraine. And so I assume that what he wants to do to try to keep peace inside his own caucus that he just barely got elected to lead is to have separate votes on that. And I think what you'll see is a majority of Republicans uh, voting yes within the caucus and an overwhelming majority of Democrats voting yes on that. And I believe it'll ultimately pass. Before you go, um, if you were president and you were on the phone with Bibi Netanyahu, would you tell him we need humanitarian pauses? John Kirby at the White House told us yesterday we may need multiple humanitarian pauses. Do you think, I know you don't want a ceasefire, but does there need to be a pause to get some of these folks out, get Americans out, help the children? Look, I would think if we could get Americans out, um, that would be a goal for us to reach, but I don't think that would happen. I think what Hamas would want is not a pause. They would want to guarantee that Israel would not invade Gaza at all. And we can't give them that guarantee because of the attack they perpetrated on October 7th. Uh, they killed 1,400 civilians. Uh, it's not right. It's not fair. And, and Israel needs to degrade their capability to do it again. So, and secondly, I wouldn't be telling the prime minister of Israel how to respond to the worst attack and murder of Jews since the Holocaust. I would say to him three things. One, you have the absolute obligation for to protect the territorial integrity and safety and security of your citizens. Two, you have to degrade Hamas's ability to ever do this to you again. But three, keep your eye on the ball. At the end of this, what we want is the ability to isolate Iran by making more agreements with other Arab countries. So keep that goal in mind without me micromanaging how he's going to do a pause, no pause, mm -hmm. to keep those principles in mind. And those would yeah. be my conversations with and Netanyahu. Notable on your last point that the Saudi defense minister was at the White House this week having those discussions. Um, thank you very much. Governor. Well, thank you guys for having yeah. me. It's good to be in Come studio. Come back. Thanks. Well, there are new details surrounding the shocking red flags, the main shooter, what police and the military knew before the attack. Also, what we were just talking about, House Republicans revealing those details of the $14.3 billion aid package for Israel, why their plan still does face that uphill battle in their own conference. Before Next. we go to break, we do want to show right now smoke plumes from Gaza as the airstrikes, the ground incursion continues in the conflict. It shows no signs of ending anytime soon. Stay with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. We are continuing to monitor what's happening over Gaza City. You see smoke rising there as airstrikes, artillery strikes, and a ground incursion continues. We will keep you posted uh, as we learn the latest from what's happening. Also, to the mass shooting in Maine, very disturbing new details about so many glaring warning signs before it that left 18 people dead and they just weren't followed up on. According to newly released documents from the sheriff's office, the shooter's ex-wife and son went to the police in May to report their concerns about his paranoia. Police visited the gunman's residence twice in September after his army unit reported that Card was, quote, having psychotic episodes 
where he is hearing voices that are insulting him, calling him a pedophile. Card is also making threats to shoot up the Seiko National Guard facility. Our Shimon Parker-Pez has been doing all of this reporting on the ground in Maine and joins us live this morning. What are the facts, Shimon? The facts are, as you said, the warning signs were there. They were there in May. They were there in July. They were there in September. And instead of someone saying, hold up, wait a second, we have to do something about this. We have to get this man help. We have to get his guns away from him. We have to potentially take him off the street. Everyone just sort of acted like social workers here, certainly the law enforcement officials, the military, all saying they were going to try and get him help. They were using the family uh, to try and get him help. But clearly, based on these documents, none of that was working. And here we are today with 18 people dead in something that certainly people across this country, from law enforcement officials, people in this state to the families, believe this could have been prevented had someone just taken the action. When we look through these documents, you see that back in July, when uh, the shooter was in training in New York, he had an episode. There was a mental breakdown. A fellow soldier complained uh, that he was sort of talking about potentially doing some kind of a mass shooting, talking about violence, talking about hurting people. And they were concerned and they went to military officials, so much so that we found out yesterday that the army in a statement said that they basically instituted uh, a policy. They, They said that he could no longer handle weapons or ammunition. But yet somehow he continued uh, to be able to possess his personal weapons. And then we see, as we know now in September, the family, the military all went to the police saying that they needed to get him help. And well, he just remained on the street. And here we are today. Shimon, these documents, I think, kind of bring into sharp focus the back and forth you had with the governor on some of these missed warning signs last night. What did she tell you at the time? Well, look, my questioning of the governor comes after we repeatedly, in the days after this, went to her officials, the head of the the Department of Public Safety here, the commissioner of the uh, Department of Public Safety. We knew this information and we asked him many times, what were the contacts between law enforcement? He didn't want to answer them and he was evasive about it for days and they have refused to answer these questions. So yesterday, when the governor decided to have a press conference, we went ahead and tried to ask her and get her reaction to our reporting that there was this law enforcement contact. And well, she also didn't want to answer. Take a listen to what uh, she said. We know that there is an alarming concern from the law enforcement community that activity and information here was ignored. And the simple answer is, why was that done? And are you concerned about that? I think those kinds of facts have yet to be determined. You're making assumptions. I'm not willing to make these assumptions. And there you go. You know, the thing for her to say is that we're making assumptions. We're not making assumptions. We have the documents. We have the proof. You know, we're also talking to sources and officials here on the ground, senior law enforcement officials who are all raising concerns over how the sheriff's office handled this. Shimon, keep digging. Great work. Thank you. 
In just about an hour, Secretary of State Antony Blinken and U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin will sit for a key Senate hearing on defense funding for both Israel and Ukraine. And that hearing will happen as we continue to see smoke rising over Gaza. Military operations still very much underway. Stay with us. These are live pictures to the left on your screen where smoke is rising over Gaza. On the right, a picture of Capitol Hill this morning. We're in just under an hour. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin will both make their case to Senate lawmakers for the Biden administration's $105 billion emergency aid request for Israel and Ukraine. Now that funding has relatively wide bipartisan support, but a growing number of Republicans have become resistant to the idea of additional money for Kyiv, putting its overall approval in jeopardy. CNN's Manu Raju is live for us on Capitol Hill. Manu, is this hearing going to change any minds? Uh, it is unclear. There is significant divergence between the House Republicans and Senate Republicans about how to proceed on this matter, particularly among the leadership. The Senate Republican leader, Mitch McConnell, who is pushing hard to include Ukraine aid along with Israel aid as the White House pushes for $105 billion in emergency funding along with dealing with the South Pacific, dealing with issues along the southern border with Mexico. They want all of that. But the House Republicans are going on a different approach. The, the new speaker, Mike Johnson, announced plans to move on a standalone plan just for Israel, $14.3 billion to punt on the issue of Ukraine. And also as part of that $14.3 billion package, including spending cuts, cuts to the IRS enforcement, something that Democrats say they will absolutely not accept. So there is there are major questions now on Capitol Hill about whether Israel funding can get approved, whether Ukraine funding can get approved. And in talking to Democrats and Senate Republicans yesterday, it was clear there was significant difference of opinion about how to proceed and on certainty about what will act, uh, what will ultimately be accomplished. I mean, do you see any way that a bill like that can get out of the Senate? I would think that would be very hard in the Senate. So I think what we're going to do is, our, you know, I think the burden on our shoulders is to pass a very bipartisan bill that has Ukraine, Israel, Gaza, disaster relief, border um, in it and then send that over to the House. I think that's a mistake. We have a debate about Ukraine. I, my views on that are well known. But uh, let's not slow down the Israel aid package. There. How do you feel about Senator McConnell's push to include Ukraine as part of the Israel supplemental? Well, I mean, it's something he's passionate about. Um, do you support as, it? As are a lot of our members. Well, I think we need to um, continue to support Ukraine's effort to stop Russia. Um, Russia is an adversary. They represent a national security threat to the United States. So I support that. How that gets done is another question. And that is the big point there from the number two Senate Republican. How that gets done is another question. It's a big question. Later this week, the House will try to pass that standalone Israel bill with cuts to IRS funding. Get that through the House this week. That is uncertain whether it could get past the House. And it's dead on arrival, according to top Senate Democrats in the Senate. So just a lot of questions at this time of international crises about whether Congress can respond or whether, once again, things can get stalled and lead to uncertainty about helping the United States partners <clears throat> overseas. Guys. Manu, thank you for the reporting. Get back to you soon. And joining us now, Republican Congresswoman from Indiana, Victoria Sparks. She's the first U.S. Congress member uh, born in Ukraine. Uh, Congresswoman, we appreciate your time. To start, you have been an unequivocal supporter uh, of Israel and their need particularly to defend themselves in the wake of October 7th. Do you believe this proposal, which Senate Democrats say is dead on arrival, Senate Minor Minority Leader Mitch McConnell disagrees with, is the right course of action? 
Thank you for having me. And I'm very disappointed to hear that, you know, that we are not wanting to deal with our fiscal issue. We do need urgently to help Ukraine. We need and we need urgently to help Israel. But I think it's important for us also to deal with our spending. And I think this package is very reasonable what our new speakers proposing. We need to understand that we already give 12 billion per year appropriation to IRS, 80 billion additional appropriations. <coughs> so what it does, it just give less increase to IRS, which is really, you know, not doing a good job anyway and harassing a lot of Americans. So I think we need to move Israel aid quick. This is very urgent. You know, people of Israel are fighting very serious battle that they need to win and in destabilizing the whole region and can really get us involved in very, very significant crisis. So I think that needs to move first quicker. And then we have to deal with Ukraine. But if, if this funding for Israel, Congresswoman, is contingent on those cuts to the IRS, you run into the issue that the nonpartisan committee for a responsible federal budget did the math and they said, well, you cut the money to the IRS that dilutes their ability to, you know, get revenue. And their projection is that it adds 30 billion to the deficit. Well, this is how, like, you know, gimmicks overcome it. But in reality, it doesn't, you know, what we're just talking, we're still significantly increasing, you know, funding for IRS. We have regular appropriation, 12 billion per year. So this is 80 billion that were given initially. So it's going to be over 60 billion, still given more to IRS. This is a plenty of money. We need to okay. see first what they're using for. So well, I think that is a very reasonable approach considering the amount of debt we have right now and uh, where we are fiscally. Look, and you've been so clear where you stand on the debt and you've been calling for a debt commission. I understand that. But I, 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 those are the projections from the nonpartisan committee. Is it worth stopping funding to Israel over that? No, we're not. We need just to have a conversation. No one is stopping that. This is an actually very reasonable proposal. And we are going to say, and, and we need to understand, the spending that was given funding for IRS was given over 10 years. So we need to see first what they're spending on. So we have to have not these blank checks to these agencies. So we're still giving more money. Inflation Reduction Act gave $80 billion on top of it. So it's still, even if we reduce this $14 billion, you know, it's still go to over 60 billion extra. This is a lot of money given to the agency that we haven't seen working efficiently. And are they going to really doing their job or really harassing small businesses and not really helping them? So I think it's something we have questions to ask. So I think it's reasonable. Uh, I think the money is in part to enhance efficiency to some degree. I do, I do want to ask you the Lack of Ukraine funding. Speaker Johnson has been clear he wanted to separate the two issues, but he's not mentioned what the pathway for Ukraine funding is. He's not put anything on the table. Pay-fors or no pay-fors, what is the path right now? I think we need to make sure that President Biden is accountable to Congress and American people. You know, even if we look at all of these packages, you know, there are a lot of associated causes with Ukraine. Congress never really got an answer. What are these causes? Where the money spent? We spent over $100 billion already. And we wanted to know which countries we're sending money to, what are these causes, and why we're not sending enough in weapons to Ukraine. Every package, only 10 to 20 percent goes to weapons. The rest of it goes to a lot of causes. 
surprises. So we need to understand because President Biden has grandiose statements about Ukraine winning, but he's sending aid not to lose. And that is not a strategy that we need to have dealing with very aggressive country like Russia. Well, the Secretary of State and Defense, I'm sure will be asked about that today in the Senate. Representative Victoria Sparks, we appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Lawyers for Donald Trump looking to block a witness from testifying for the prosecution at his civil fraud trial ongoing here in New York. We'll tell you why. And the Actors Union and Hollywood Studios appear to be making progress in their negotiations. We're going to update you on where things stand. That's next. And Hollywood studios seem to be getting closer to a deal. SAG after the union that represents more than 150,000 Hollywood actors and the major studios have made significant progress in their negotiating sessions in the last couple of days. That is a word from people familiar with the talks. A deal cannot come soon enough. The studios need to imminently resume production if there is any hope that the winter half of the television season can be salvaged and thousands of actors are in increasingly dire need of their paychecks. If production is not resumed soon, the shortened television seasons could be scrapped altogether. So there's hope. Hope. We'll see. Well, lawyers for former President Trump looking to block a witness from testifying for the prosecution at his civil fraud trial here in New York. They're claiming the attorney general plans to use an expert witness to substitute for evidence it did not present to the judge. It's unfolding just before Trump's adult children will actually be called to the stand. CNN's Bryn Gengrass is live to help us unpack this. I feel like there's going to be a TV show written about the ups and downs of this trial. Yeah. Why don't they want this person to testify? Yeah, it's going to be a crazy two weeks. So this is a witness that's an expert witness, according to the New York State Attorney General, essentially going to testify to the fact that insurers and lenders wouldn't have given the deals it gave Trump Org had they not had they known that these uh, you know um, properties were evaluated and basically inflated. So essentially saying that there's wrongdoing here and the money would not have been given to the Trump Org. Now, they're also supposed to testify to the fact of how much money should be paid back from Trump Org to the state, what they call disgorgement. Uh, and remember, at the beginning of this trial, the New York attorney general asking for $250 million. So the defense, as you said, Will, saying here, listen, you can't just fill in the gaps with this witness, expert witness to testimony we should have been hearing for the last four months. This is all speculative. So we're going to have to see how the judge rules on this once court begins at 10 o'clock this morning. But uh, we'll see. Former President Trump's children have to take the stand. Yeah. When? Coming up tomorrow. Don Jr. is first on the list. Now, listen, the schedule could change a little bit based on the testimony, how long it takes for both sides. Um, but Eric Trump also expected in the next couple days this week. Then we might hear from Ivanka next week. She might appeal that. But also the president, former president, going to take the stand as well. And listen, they're they're integral to this, right? I mean, we have heard their names either through emails or from witness testimony. Their names spoken in court. Eric and Don Jr. are defendants in this trial. So their testimony is going to be integral to this. So we'll see. Foreign president not going to be in the courtroom, though, when his children hmm. take the stand. So that's an interesting part of this. But like you said, it's, it's going to be a little bit crazy <laughs> the next couple of weeks. I maintain the most New York City trial. <laughs> I know. The most New York trial. Uh, Bryn, thanks for all covering right. all of it. It is Halloween. Happy Halloween. The holiday brings tricks and treats to families around the world. It also brings in a serious amount of money our Harry Enten here. Of course, you're wearing a Bills uniform. I was uniform. squinting because I could see Harry out of the corner of my eye, and I was completely terrified. Here with the numbers was... behind the candy as we Hi, see Harry. the Monster Mash. Hi, Harry. Yeah. Thanks. I want the candy corn. It's Halloween. If you have not bought your costume yet or candy, you still have time, and you all should have seen Phil's costume when he came to work this morning. Tell them. 
Scooby-Doo. It was epic. I like fun. And Halloween. <laughs> Clearly, we have numbers on the most popular candy and costumes and Harry as the Bills. Good morning. I'm, I'm the Bills. I am the Bills. I'm <laughs> Jim Kelly right here. Great Bills quarterback from the late 80s and through the mid 90s. Uh, look, let's take a look. Halloween is big business. How much is expected to be spent this year? $12.2 billion. That's a record high. 73% of Americans celebrate it in one way or another. Perhaps you're going to go on trick-or-treat. Perhaps you're going to appear on television and dress as your childhood idol. <laughs> one of the two, perhaps different for different folks. Now, of course, we're talking about costumes. So what are the top, some of the top Googled and TikTok costumes this year? Barbie, perhaps, not too much of a surprise given the success of the film earlier this year. How about, if you're a couple, how about Swift and Kelsey? Spider-Man, always a classic, a witch, or Wednesday Addams. You know, I always did enjoy that show growing up. Perhaps you two did as well. What are you, you're Scooby-Doo, where are you? What are you doing? This, but not what you expect. I'm weird Barbie. You're with weird. all the makeup and the have wig the and the whole thing. I have not seen the Come movie. Come on! I, so you know what's sad? Sarah Steiner went to see that film with my mother and they didn't invite me. This is actually a true actual story, true story, by the way. Can I ask you, though, I want to talk about the important things. Yes. Candy. Candy. What does America love on the candy front? You know, number one, Reese's, Reese's. peanut butter cups. I like that. 36%. Yeah. Snickers, oh. 18%. M&M's, 11%. The big divisive one here... Candy corn at six percent. I have to ask you, candy I, corn. I just you just gave me candy corn going to commercial. Correct. I just tried to give it to Grace, and now it's our on great set. anchor producer who does, didn't want it because well, apparently it it's not the best. I like candy. Halloween candy. I think I think it's a perfectly fine candy, but you'll also notice that a lot of these on here are chocolate. They're chocolate, so. Here's a chocolate. I got this downstairs. I will note, I didn't actually go out and buy the candy. Someone was giving them downstairs out in our lobby, and I was like, you know what? This would be great for television. Right. So that's what you call utilizing everything that's going on. Can I just ask oh. real quick? You said you had a fun one. Yeah. What's the fun? Is this the fun one? I think this is a fun one. Okay. Americans who believe in ghosts. In 1979, okay. it was just 11%. Look where we are today. 39% of Americans believe in ghosts. Do you guys believe Okay, in I have to wrap you up here. We have 15 seconds left, and I want to leave you all with this. This is what I walked into in the office this morning. Scooby Mattingly. Not Spill Mattingly. <laughs> Scooby Mattingly. I like fun. You like fun. And backpacks. That is apparently amazing. Apparently I'm 15 years old. <laughs> Everybody have a great Halloween. Harry, thank you Thanks as always, my friend. CNN New Central starts right now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.